we're in the middle of a, a five-part series on some of the hard sayings of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the need for honest self-examination because Jesus made it clear that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, or even does a bunch of religious stuff is necessarily his follower. Well, today we're going to look at what Jesus means when he says we're to tear out our eye or cut off our hand if they cause us to sin. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand nice and high here and in the conference center? The guys would be happy to hand you a Bible. If you get one of those Bibles, it's on page 525. Matthew chapter 5, I probably should open it too. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. I'm going to read that and you can follow along. This is Jesus speaking and he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now Jesus is addressing men here. But don't think that these words don't apply to women as well. This message is for everyone, married or single, male or female. And what Jesus is doing is he's continuing this remarkable sermon by contrasting with six illustrations the difference between external performance and the internal obedience that God desires. See, he started the message in verse 3 with a a sermon on blessedness. Nine times he told his listeners how to be blessed by God. He said, you need to be meek to be blessed by God. He said, you need to be a peacemaker to be blessed by God. He said, you need to be poor in spirit to be blessed by God. He said, we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness if we want to be blessed by God. Now, here, beginning in verse 21, he makes a transition in order to define the doctrine of sin. Because if you want to truly appreciate blessing, you have to have a proper understanding of sin. See, it's an inadequate view of sin that it's one of the chief causes of a lack of blessing. Sin stands in the way of blessing from God. Therefore, it must be dealt with and removed. So Jesus moves right from this teaching on blessing to the doctrine of sin. What's so hard about what he says, and there are many things that are difficult in this message, but the first thing that is so hard about what he says that is scandalous is that sin includes what leads up to the act, not just the act itself. That we can commit sin 
right here in our heart without anybody else knowing it. That even when we look perfectly respectable, if there's bad stuff going on here or in here, it is still sin. So what he's doing here is simply giving a correct interpretation of the law. See, the law doesn't just stop at our actions, as the religious leaders of the day taught. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were kind of smug and, and self-righteous because they knew they weren't guilty of certain things. But Jesus is saying, it's not just what we do, but what we want to do that demonstrates the sinfulness of our, of our hearts. So that alone would be a pretty hard saying. But by saying, you have heard it said, but I say, Jesus is saying, here's what the law says, but I say. So what we have here is very early in his ministry, Jesus demonstrating that he has more authority than Moses. That would have been shocking to them. Moses was their man. Moses was their hero. And it was the, the teachers, the Pharisees and the scribes of the day who sat in the seat of Moses and they therefore listened to whatever they said. They all must have been shocked when Jesus took the law beyond where they thought Moses did. That he would raise the standard of righteousness higher than where they believed the law took it. See, the Pharisees had relegated obedience to the external adherence of the law. So as long as they followed it and the traditions, they felt that they were okay. But Jesus is telling them and us today that the issue of obedience is much deeper than just conforming to a set of laws or rules. The issue of obedience begins in the heart. Now, this was a shocking statement that God is not just concerned about adulterous behavior. He is concerned about the adulterous attitudes of our heart. So Jesus is continuing to unmask the self-righteous externalism that's typified by the scribes and Pharisees by showing them that the only righteousness acceptable to God is purity of heart. In that message on blessedness, in verse 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, God's evaluation of us takes place in the heart. Without purity of heart, no matter how good our outward life looks, it isn't enough. And, and here's the thing. This was not a new concept. This was not really a new teaching. It is something that the Pharisees ignored, but it goes back at least a thousand years. When God sent the prophet Samuel to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse in the line of Judah, to find the next king of Israel, 
Samuel gets there and gets to Jesse's house and he sees Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. Now Eliab is big, strong, good looking. He's a soldier. Samuel assumes immediately this is the next king. But what does God say to Samuel? He says, Sam, you might just look at the outside, but I look at the heart, and he's not the man I have chosen to be my next king. God's evaluation of his people takes place in our heart. He sees and judges what goes on in here. Not just the manifestation or the lack of manifestation of certain rules and regulations. He sees and judges the origin of sin. And his aim is to get at the root of adultery and frankly, at the root of all sin, which is the spiritual condition of our hearts. See, a lustful and wicked heart is where the sin starts and then the physical activity naturally follows. It's not so much that I do something, it's what makes me do that thing. Now here Jesus is talking about looking at a woman lustfully. Um, now he's not talking about uh, just glancing at this woman. But the Greek word that's used here um, refers to the continuous process of, of looking. He's not talking about the incidental or involuntary glance, but of the intentional and repeated gazing at that woman. And there isn't a single guy in this room that doesn't know what I'm talking about and know what the difference is. Jesus is not speaking about that unavoidable and unexpected exposure to sexual temptation. He's not saying that there's anything wrong with admiring a beautiful woman as long as we move on. He's not saying to the women there's nothing wrong with admiring a handsome man as long as you move on. There is no sin in simply appreciating the beauty. It is continuing to look to satisfy the lustful desires that Jesus condemns because it displays the condition of our heart. Now here's the point, and I want to make sure that we get this. It is not the lustful looking that causes sin in the heart. It is the sin in our heart that causes the lustful looking. The lustful looking is, is simply an expression of a heart that is already immoral and adulterous. Sin starts in our mind and in our heart. And, and when a person allows a corrupt thought to stay in their mind and they, they nurture it and it stays there, all that we're doing is laying the groundwork for the sinful activity to follow. In James chapter 1, verse 15, James says, When evil desire is conceived in the mind, it gives birth to sin. What he's saying is that all sin starts with a thought. And if you want to get at the root of sin, you better look inside and examine your heart. It is not the physical act that is the root cause of sin. It is our heart and our mind and our thought life that leads us to the act. 
The act of sin is just a symptom of what's going on in here. Our hearts are polluted and contaminated, and all sin arises from that corrupt heart. Our issue is more than sinful activity. It is sin itself. Last service, we had a baby dedication up here. Had about 25 babies. Absolutely beautiful, wonderful. Parents were proud. Grandparents were sitting all over here. It was wonderful. All those beautiful babies up there, they have the same problem we do. A sinful heart. Everyone has it. And eventually it'll show. It probably already has in all of those little babies. It is there. And it is the sin itself which is the problem. Now, in, in the context of this particular passage, what Jesus is saying is that it's not only wrong to experience sex outside of your marriage. It is wrong to want to. They're both wrong. They're both sin. Now, what he's not saying is that sexual desire in itself is wrong. God created sex. God created us with strong sexual desires. But he also created the perfect context for us to satisfy those desires. And that is the marriage relationship. God wants his people to enjoy sex, to experience the joy of that. But it is to be done only in the context of the marriage relationship. Sex was not designed to work outside of marriage. In fact, it, it won't work outside of marriage. Instead of bringing the fulfillment and the oneness that God desires for us and the reason he created sex in the first place, it will only produce temporary pleasure. But I know many of you know this. Temporary pleasure, but long-term problems and long-term heartache. God designed sex to occur within the protection and the beauty of a marriage relationship. So, so Jesus starts this, this message, this hard saying, by reminding us that sin is a matter of the heart. Then he continues now by telling us, okay, here's how to deal with it. Here's what you need to do. So first he gives us the definition of sin, and then he calls us to radically and ruthlessly deal with it. Let's look again at verses 28 and 29, uh, 29 and 30, sorry. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus is not advocating uh, bodily mutilation. He's using a metaphor. In the Jewish culture, the, the right hand and the right eye uh, represented the best that a person had. So what Jesus is saying is that whatever causes you to be tempted, you need to cut it off right at its source. You need to cut it out. You need to get rid of it. 
You need to throw it away because there is nothing, not even your right hand or your right eye, that is so valuable that it would be worth keeping at the expense of righteousness and ultimately your life. Now, the, the, the example of, of tearing out an eye or cutting off a hand is, is a, a pretty extreme example. And it's because it will take pretty extreme measures to get rid of the sin in our lives. Now, if you're thinking about it, though, it, it kind of sounds like what Jesus is saying here is contradictory, right? He makes a, a very clear statement that sin is in our heart. That's where the problem is. But yet then he says we're to tear out our eye or cut off our hand. If, if we gouge out our right eye, our left eye is still going to look. And even if we, we gouge them both out, we're still going to fantasize in our minds. And, and if we cut off that right hand, well, that left hand is still available to lead us into sin. See, that's how we know it's just a metaphor. Because Jesus is God. And God could never and would never contradict himself. So, so he is, he's giving us a picture. The intent of his words is to call for the dramatic removal of the sinful triggers within us that lead us to do the wrong thing. Maintaining purity, dealing with sin, takes commitment, it takes self-sacrifice, and it takes self-discipline. Anything, anything that morally or spiritually traps us, that leads us to sin or to stay in sin, needs to be completely and totally removed from our lives. And it needs to be done quickly. To put it in context of what he is saying and to say it plainly, the best cure for sinful activity is amputation. The best way to remove lust from your life, for example, is to amputate anything that causes you to lust. And he says our very survival is at, take, at stake. It's going to take drastic measures. There was a, a, an interesting example of this. Uh, uh, in 2003, a, a young man by the name of Aaron Ralston, uh, there was a movie actually about it called 127 Hours. He, he had gone hiking uh, by himself out in the uh, canyon in Utah. And uh, while he was there, a, a very large boulder became dislodged and trapped his arm against the canyon wall. For four days, he tried to extricate himself. He had enough water to barely take a sip or two each day, and he, he rationed it out as long as he could. Well, when it came to the end of the fourth day, he realized his water was out, that he was going to die. In fact, he uh, scrawled his, uh, his name and his date of birth and the next day expected date of death. Well, he woke up the next morning and he was surprised and he had kind of an epiphany. He thought, well, there is one way that I could possibly save myself and that's to amputate my arm. So he looked at the little two-inch knife that he had and he realized there was no way that it could cut through his bone. So he, he took his arm and used the boulder for torque, and he broke 
the ulna and radius bone in his forearm. Then he took that two-inch knife and he amputated the rest of his arm and he used the tourniquet to stem the blood flow. And he survived. He recognized that it was better to lose that arm than to die in the wilderness. Do we recognize that? Do, are we willing to go to that kind of a drastic measure to remove the sin in our lives, to remove the trigger, to remove the temptation so that we will live? That's what Jesus calls us to. That's why this saying is so hard. I'm sure Aaron wanted to keep that arm, but he wanted more to live. And I'm sure that whatever it is that's causing us to disobey God is important and attractive, but it's not as important and as attractive as living a life that honors God. See, the Bible is very clear all the way through. The best treatment for chronic sin is to get rid of anything, anything that causes us to sin. We should be willing to give it up, whatever it is, whatever's necessary, even the most cherished things we have, like an eye or a hand. We have to do it to protect ourselves. If we have to run away, that's what we need to do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are to flee from sexual immorality. We are to cut off whatever it is that's the source of our temptation. We can't show it any mercy. We can't fool with it. We can't flirt with it. We can't keep it close by. It has to be removed totally and completely. You might love your eye, but isn't it better to lose a diseased eye then allow it to kill the entire body. You might love that right hand, but isn't it better to stop the gangrene before it travels throughout the rest of your body and it kills you? If you know that going to a particular place or being alone with a particular person is going to cause you to fall into temptation, then you need to plan in advance to stay away. And if it just so happens that accidentally you run into that person or to that place, run for your life. Get away. Get out. We have to control the things that are around us. We have to watch where we go. We have to watch what we do, what we read, what we watch on our TVs and our computers. We need to be careful of the company that we keep, the conversations that we have, anything that can potentially lead us into temptation we need to remove. So Jesus gives us one way to have victory in this battle against temptation and sin it is to drastically and ruthlessly deal with whatever causes us to experience temptation. And then he gives us a second motivation 
And it's another part of this hard saying. He says, there is and will be severe consequences for sin. He says that continuing unrepentant sinful behavior will lead to hell. Now the word he uses here for hell is Gehenna. A Gehenna is a Greek word and it, it refers to um, a smelly, fiery garbage dump that was located in the Valley of Hinnom just outside of Jerusalem. The fires there burned day and night and it smelled constantly. It was the place where they dragged the carcasses of unclean animals to be burnt. It was the place that they took the bodies of criminals to be burned. It was a horrible place. No one, no one wanted to be near there. All throughout the New Testament and the early Christian writings, it was clear that Gehenna was a place where evil was going to be destroyed. Nobody went there on purpose. Nobody chose to go there. And what Jesus is saying is that sin has drastic and long-term consequences. And he's emphasizing that the present is not our only life. That there is an eternity and an everlasting future for the body and the soul. And a little pleasure now could result in significant long-term pain. And you know, Jesus is not beating around the bush here. He, he's not calling sin um, a disease or an addiction. He's not saying that sin is a, is a, a result of heredity or, or genetics. No, he's saying that sin is disobedience. There's no political correctness here. This is directly to the point. Sin is choosing to deliberately disobey God, and when you do that, you will suffer the consequences. So next time, next time that you are thinking about disobeying a clear command of God, please remember that there are serious consequences. And those consequences are so serious that cutting off your arm or gouging out your eye is going to be less painful. I've had on a number of occasions, uh, it's scary to think how many times that I've heard this, meeting with a, a couple who are struggling in their marriage and one or the other of the uh, spouses will, will say to me, I understand that I do not have biblical grounds for divorce. God clearly delineates only two biblical grounds for divorce, and I don't have either of those. But I know that God wants me happy, and this is a very unhappy, loveless marriage. I want you to know my, my heart breaks for someone that's in, a, in an unhappy and loveless marriage. But if you do not have biblical grounds for divorce and you choose because you believe that God wants you happy to leave that marriage and end it, you are in disobedience to the clear command of God and you will suffer consequences as a result of that. 
See, someone wants to find sin as, as short-term gain with long-term pain. And you know, Jesus, who never sinned, perfectly understands the consequences of sin. You see, it was our sin and the consequences of our sin that he felt on the cross of Calvary. It was our sin that made it necessary for Jesus to die. It was our sin that he felt when that crown of thorns was jammed onto his head. It was our sin that he felt when that whip tore the flesh on his back. It was our sin that he felt when they jammed that cross on his shoulder and made him travel through the streets of Jerusalem carrying that cross. It was our sin that he felt when those guards punched him and spit on him. It was our sin that he felt when they stripped him naked in public and drove those nails into his hands and into his feet. It was our sin that he felt when they jammed that spear into his side. And worst of all, at that moment that all of our sin was placed upon him at the cross of Calvary, his heavenly father, with whom he had been in perfect relationship with for all eternity, turned his back on him. No, Jesus understands the pain and the consequences of sin. And I would pray that it would remind us that our gracious, wonderful Savior took our sin upon himself so that we would not experience hell, that we would remember that the next time that we're tempted to go in a direction that disobeys clear commands of God. You see, yes, there are consequences for us, and that should be a motivation not to sin. But the fact that the consequences also fell upon him should remind us we need to turn away. We need to run. We need to flee. But here's the problem we all face, and it's a universal problem. Getting rid of harmful influences, getting them out of our lives, cutting them off, running, doing all of the things that I mentioned are helpful. But ultimately, outward activity will not correct a corrupt heart. Jesus is not suggesting that by doing something or not doing something, we can eliminate our tendency to sin. Outward acts cannot and can never produce inward purity. Jesus purposely set out impossible standards of his kingdom righteousness when he revealed that all people, even those beautiful little babies that were up here at last service, all people are murderers and adulterers in their hearts. 
Because of Jesus' definition of sin, there isn't a single person ever born who can stand before a holy God and say, not guilty. That is why Paul could say in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. Jesus has presented us with a standard we can't keep. And so we're faced with a sin problem with which we have no remedy. So what Jesus is really doing here when he presents us with this true definition of sin is he's forcing us to see that we need a Savior. We must recognize that in ourselves there are no resources with which we can solve our sin problem. And we are desperately, desperately in need of someone who will. And he is just that someone. The Lord Jesus' remedy for a bad heart is a new heart. And only he can give that to us. You see, if our, if our picture of sin, if our understanding of sin is like the Pharisees, that says sin is merely what we do or don't do, then our idea of salvation has to simply be, well, do that or don't do that. Let your, your good outweigh your bad and, and you'll be fine. See, if it's only about external activity, we're left with a pretty minimal requirement for salvation, which is what the Pharisees believed, which is what religious people of every era have ever believed. Just go to church, do the right thing, and you'll be saved. But in order to understand the infinite cost and the infinite value of our salvation, and in order to understand what the death of Jesus really means, we have to understand just how evil sin is and how deeply rotten every one of our hearts really are. That is why Jesus would have to go to such an extreme to accomplish our salvation. Jesus did far more for us than gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand. Jesus gave his very life so that we might be right with God. Peter, in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 24, he says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to gouge out an eye. We don't have to cut off a hand in order to be right with God. To be righteous, we simply must accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the punishment of our sin. We must turn our lives over to him as our redeemer. And we must have the confidence of our salvation that it rests on him and him alone. When we do, we've done way more for our righteousness than cutting off a hand or, or gouging out an eye. You see, we, we talked about this idea of motivation to win the battle against sin. We said that there are consequences to us 
We said we have, to, we have to deal drastically with it. We said that there are consequences to our Savior because of it. But ultimately, ultimately, the greatest motivation to continue to wage that battle against sin is what Jesus has done for us. When we recognize what he has done in giving us his righteousness, our response has to be that we want to do everything we can to obey him and to demonstrate our love for him. Three times in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. You see, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because of what he has done for us. And we respond to that love by obeying his commands, by doing what he says, by putting sin away as far as we can, by dealing drastically and radically with it if it is staying in our lives. But here's the other truth. No matter how hard we work, no matter how good we want to be, we're still going to make mistakes. In 1 John chapter 1, John says, if you claim to have no sin, you're a liar. We are still in a battle. We are still going to make mistakes. But God provides the answer to that as well. God says, I want you to work hard at maintaining purity. I want you to do everything you can. But when you do slip, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You will never move on and beyond that sin unless you uncover, unless you are honest with yourself and with God, and then you confess it. King David is, is a great example of this. King David, when he should have been out in the battlefield with his men, was lingering in the balcony of his castle. When he happened to look over the edge of the castle and see a beautiful woman in a bathtub below him named Bathsheba. And rather than do what we said and turn away and admire there's a beautiful woman and move on, he continued to look at her. And that continued look caused him to send one of his men down to Bathsheba's home to bring her to him. And when she was brought to him, that led to the act of adultery. And then that act of adultery led to a cover-up to try to protect himself from what he had done. And that cover-up actually led to murder as King David had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed in battle. And David, during that whole process, kept his heart hardened to his sin. He covered it up. He wouldn't deal with it until God sent him a man named Nathan who told him a story and made David realize the sin that he had committed. And when he really did, here's what David said in Psalm 32. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then... I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
how wonderful to com be completely forgiven and cleansed of the sin when we confess it. Then God says, after we confess, we need to repent. And repent simply means to turn away from that thing that is causing us to be tempted to sin, turn away from it, and turn and go in a different direction. But here's the important thing. He doesn't say just repent. He says repent and return to me with your whole heart. Which means you don't just run away from something. You run to something. You run to God. We run to him. Because if we don't fill that void, we confess and we're forgiven and we're cleansed. If we don't fill that void with something good then the bad is going to slip right in and we're going to get right back into that same pattern or maybe something even worse. You see, for those who are Christians, there is a constant spiritual battle being waged. There is our physical being and our spiritual being and they are constantly at war with each other. They are constantly battling each other. And the one that wins the battle is the one that we feed. And the one that loses is the one that is starved. So when we repent and return to God, we need to ask him. We need to beg him and pray that he will protect us. Do you know when, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he said, pray lead us not into temptation. He didn't say, in the middle of your sin, pray. No, in the middle of your sin, get out, stop, run. But before you recognize that you need the strength and sufficiency of God in order to resist that temptation, so we pray. We get God involved in the battle. It's why after David confessed his sin, in Psalm 51, he said, Create in me, O God, a pure heart. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. God must do it. It's why God said in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 14. When he called the Israelites to come back to him. He said return to me O faithless ones. And I will renew your faith. God must do it. It is why Paul said in Galatians 5.16. Live by the spirit. And you will, not desire, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what does it mean to live by the Spirit? It means to live by the Word of God. It means that we turn to the Word of God for instruction and guidance in our lives. It means that we, we set our minds and our hearts to understand, to read, to study, and to apply, to meditate on it, to memorize it. In, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says to us, let the word of Christ dwell richly within. And the, the Greek word there for dwell richly means to be at home in. It, he's saying, let the word of God be so familiar and so comfortable in your life that it's like sitting in the, your favorite chair in the house. Oh, man, you get home from work, you want to plop into that chair, you want to feel comfortable and protected and safe and warm and at home. 
That's what God is saying to live by the Spirit. Live by this word. And when we recognize that we truly are in a battle, we recognize that we need a weapon in order to survive that battle. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. It is a weapon. It's not just a defensive weapon, it's an offensive weapon. When we confess our sins, when we repent and turn away from that sin, when we run to God and to his word, we are equipped with what we need to honor God because of what he's done for us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the writer to the Hebrews says, The word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the word of God, wielded in a daily basis, that will give us the strength and the guidance and the wisdom that we need to turn to God with our whole heart and to have victory. God gives us another tool and he gives that each other. God gives us each other. God gives us community. The Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. The Christian life was never meant to be, okay, God, it's me and you. I'm just going to be here. I'm going to study this word and you and I are going to have this great relationship. No, we need each other. I need you and you need me. We need to be involved in community. We need to be in groups. That's why we emphasize so strongly being in a redemption community, being involved in service, being around other believers. Look, bad company corrupts good morals. You need to spend time with people who are like-minded, with people who desire to honor God with their lives so that when you seem to be going off the direction that you need to go, they're there. They're there to encourage you. They're there to support you. They're there to correct and admonish you if they have to. You can't do it alone. You can't do it without the word, and we can't do it without each other. Thank God that the same one who sets this high standard for his followers is the same one who forgives us when we fall short of that high standard. Thank God that the one who sets this high standard is the one who gives us the tools necessary to wage that war. Thank God that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for the precious blood of Jesus Christ poured out for many for the forgiveness of our sins. If you've never done so, if you've never experienced what it means to have a relationship with this kind of God, if you've been out there trying to do it on your own, if you've been hoping that your good works exceed your bad and as a result you're going to be okay with God, 
I hope today you realize that that can't be true. That God would never have allowed his son to suffer and experience the agonizing death and separation that he experienced on the cross if we could do anything. So we're going to have people down at the front here and in the conference center after the service that would love to talk to you share with you what it really means to have that kind of relationship, that kind of assurance. You see, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past, and it doesn't matter how many times you've done it. Jesus' blood is sufficient for every mistake you've ever made, and he'd love to forgive you for it if you'll just confess and ask him for forgiveness. And then you too can be free from the power of sin. You too can be free from the fear of death. Now we know we're not freed from the presence of sin. It will continue to be a struggle, but God gives us the tools. Come to him. Now maybe you're here and, and you're a Christian and you've been struggling with some sin in your life and you'd love to have freedom from that. Come on down front, let us pray for you. We'd love to do that. Right now, we have an opportunity to respond, to give God thanks for who he is and what he's done. We're going to share in the service of communion here in the chapel, and then Tim will close the service over in the conference center. So let's prepare our hearts now to celebrate communion. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we do thank you for the gift of salvation that we find in, in Jesus. Lord, for the fact that regardless of how hard we try or how good we do, we can never do enough but you have done more than enough, that you have provided what we need. You have done what we could never do. So Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.